0: Despair is a word that most of us are familiar with, and some of us, to various degrees, have dealt with. Despair happens to us when we seem to have thought through every situation in life, and yet realize there is no hope, or think that there is absolutely no hope. And as we come up with only negative results, we grow in despair. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, such an act of despair happened at Masada. Now, I have a slide. Oh, maybe I don't have a slide uh, about Masada. But it is in the Judean countryside. There we go. It was built by Herod, before Jesus was born. Uh, The cliffs fall 1,300 feet to the east and 300 feet to the west. And around 73 AD, the Jewish people were rebelling against the Romans. They were rebelling against the rule. And in 960 Sicarii, those those are Jewish rebels, held up in Masada for a time. But but the Romans were coming and they built ramps and, and and siege works, and they were going to kill these Sakari rebels, and so they committed mass suicide by killing one another until the last man took his own life. Now, in Jewish history, this is very much like their Alamo. Except there is a difference between the Alamo and Masada. Well, there's several differences. One, the Alamo is not in Israel, right? And it's not up on a hill but I would venture to say the main difference between the Alamo and Masada was hope. You see, yes, everyone in the Alamo died and everyone in Masada died, but the men in the Alamo were fighting, thinking that they would have hope, that someone would come to deliver them, and it wasn't soon enough. In Masada, they had no hope. In his famous works, Lord of the, uh, in his famous work, Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien deals a lot with despair and hope. In fact, you could say that might be one of the main premises throughout all three of those novels. And and for those of you who are not familiar with it, never seen the movie or read the books, um, I'll I'll shortly get to the point of what I want to quote. But essentially, there was one ring to rule them all, one ring that will destroy the whole earth. It's basically like this. (laughs) And, And these little creatures, child size, These hobbits have them. They have this ring, and this ring could kill everybody. And so they get to where these elves are and these men and these doors, and they're all sitting around a council trying to figure out what can they do to save the world. And there's a lot of talk going on, and and they basically have all said, we have no hope. And, And one of the elves stands up, his name is Arrestor, and he says this. Thus we return once more to the destroying of the ring, and yet we come no nearer. What strength have we for the finding of the fire in which it was made? That's how they could destroy it. That is the path of despair, or of folly, I would say, if the long wisdom of Elrond did not forbid me. And then one of the main characters, Gandalf, says this. Everyone's despairing. There's no hope. We're all going to die because we can't destroy this ring. And Gandalf says this, despair or folly? It is not despair, for despair is only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. We do not. It is wisdom to recognize necessity when all other courses have been weighed, though as folly it may appear to those who cling to false hope. Well, let folly be our cloak, A veil before the eyes of the enemy. A fictitious character, but I think he hits the nail on the head. Despair is only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. When the circumstances of life are really, really hard and weighing on you, and there's a burden on your heart and your soul, friends, we do have... Hope, we don't need to despair. At Masada, their hope was to overthrow the Romans. And they're held up in that fortress, thinking that it was impregnable. And the Romans knock at the door. And at that point, they realize they had no hope. But friends, we are not without hope. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. In John 6 this morning, what we will see is something that would drive most of us to despair. The day before our current story, Jesus is in front of a crowd of thousands, and he is the most popular man in all of Palestine. The crowds want to make him king. But today, we will finish what we started several weeks ago. And that is Jesus talking to the same crowd, a group of people in a little town called Capernaum, at the end of the story, 99.9% of everyone will leave him. But Jesus doesn't despair. I think in our text today, Jesus is certainly sad. He's disappointed, but he doesn't panic, he doesn't have despair. His resolve is anchored in the hope of the mission of God. And this is good news for you and me. Certainly, there's hope because Jesus accomplished. Uh, what he came to set out to do. He ends up dying on the cross and rising again. We know that. And that's salvific good news for us. But there is also good news of hope that can be anchored in the sovereignty of God and the words of Jesus for our everyday lives that you and I, friends, if we belong to Christ, do not have to despair. And in fact, that's our big idea for this morning. Our big idea is this, Anchor yourself in hope through Jesus' words and the sovereign plan of God. Or said in another way, you can hope because the words of Jesus point us to the sovereign plan of God. Let's read our text. We're in John chapter 6, verse 60, to the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. At the end of John 6 we have a a soberness, We we have Jesus going from the peak of his ministry minus his approach to Jerusalem, with tens of thousands of people following after him, to at the end of this text, 11, 11 people. How did we get here? Well, in John 5, Jesus heals a man at the pools of Bethesda, uh, a man who, who is miraculously healed, but he's healed on a Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders get really angry. And Jesus talks to them, and he, as he uh, uh, talks to them, he makes himself equal with the Father, and that infuriates them. And so in John 5, 18, the Jews were looking to kill Jesus because he made himself equal with the Father. Fast forward a little while. We come to John chapter six. Despite the fact that the Jewish leaders are trying to kill Jesus because he is clearly making himself equal with God, Jesus' following grows larger and larger and larger. And his cousin John the Baptist dies and he tries to take the 12 out to the wilderness to to mourn and to pray, but word gets out and a group of thousands follow. We know that there's 5,000 able-bodied men. We know from Matthew that there's also women and children. So estimates of fifteen to 20,000, maybe even more, are following Jesus in the middle of the wilderness. And Jesus performs signs and, and wonders. He, he heals the sick. He casts out demons. He, he feeds them through a huge miracle, taking five barley loaves and two fish, and he feeds everybody more than enough. Then he walks on water, and he has rescued Peter. And, and, and then um, he's in Capernaum, and everyone's looking for him on the other side of the shore. And more people come. People from Tiberias in these boats, and they all get on these boats, and they go and they find Jesus. And Jesus starts talking to them. And last week we talked about how Jesus said he is the bread from heaven, the true bread that gives life. And he tells people to, to believe in him that they may have life. And they don't get it, except they, they kind of do. Is he really saying he's from heaven? And the Jewish leaders, they they say, we know his mom and dad. There's nothing special about him. Here we are in John 6. And as I was reading through John 6 this week, as I was considering this passage, these 12 verses, man, they're really disappointing. All of John 6, even though Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and he offers an invitation for people to believe in him. I mean, that's, that's a glorious truth. And even with Simon Peter's confession, John 6 is a downer. Re- remember, before Jesus does the miracle on feeding the 5,000, he looks up to heaven. And then he asks Philip a question. He goes, Philip, where can we feed all these people? And his own disciple, one of the 12, Philip, Philip uh, we can't do it. The numbers don't work out. And then there's Andrew, and Andrew has a, a little bit of hope, a little bit of hope. He says, well, here's this kid with a happy meal. It's not going to do us much good. And then what we don't see in John 6, but we know this happened from, from the other gospel accounts, Because Jesus feeding the 5,000, it's in all the Gospels, only miracle. And then what they record after is Jesus walking on the water. But, But what happens when Jesus walks on the water? Peter comes out to him, right? And for a sliver, for a moment, Peter sees Jesus and he's walking on the water, but then he looks at the waves, and he starts to sink and Jesus rescues him. And then Jesus is in Capernaum, and all these people show up, and Jesus starts teaching them, and they refuse to believe. Then the Jewish leaders question what Jesus is saying. They question his authority. And then in chapter 6, we see at the very end, disciples saying this is a hard saying. And we're going to be left with 11. 12, but Jesus knows that one of them is going to betray him. But even as we look at John 6 and we, we, we see really hard things, Jesus isn't panicking. Not once. He doesn't panic. Let's look at our text. Uh, we start off with disciples. Who are these disciples? Well, these disciples are just fo- excuse me, followers of Jesus. <clears throat> They're just simple people who were following Jesus. This is the crowd that's out in the wilderness. They're the people that came on boats from Tiberias. They are people who are following Jesus. Um, oftentimes, we can split all of humanity into two groups, right? Those who who follow Jesus and those who don't. And I would agree here. There's people who follow Jesus and people who don't. But here's a little nuanced approach. There are some people who really like. The idea of Jesus, they like his teachings, they like what Jesus can offer, but they are not true believers in Jesus, they do not love Jesus. And that's who these disciples are. They hear Jesus' teaching and they say, it's hard. And this word doesn't mean that they couldn't understand it, they understood what Jesus was saying. The, The Greek word, I checked it twice this week and then I checked it once more this morning. The word has the idea of harsh or strong or offensive. So what are they saying that's offensive? Well, what's offending them? What's harsh about Jesus' teaching? What's harsh about Jesus' teaching is he just said that he came from heaven and he says, you can't know God unless you believe in me. And it would be really preposterous if I got up here and I started telling you all, look, I've been praying over the last several months and reading my Bible and I got a vision from heaven that I am the Messiah, right? You guys would be like, okay, we don't even believe you. But this is someone who's lived among them, grown up among them. Many of them know who Jesus is, they know his family, they know his brothers, his sisters, they they know Jesus. And he's saying, I am equal to God. That's hard. But is that offensive? Well, to some, but the, but there's more. There, there's the metaphoric language that Jesus Jesus uses about His flesh and His blood, and He says, "Unless you eat of My flesh and drink of My blood, you will not be saved." And He pushes the metaphor to the point that you have to believe in Me. And I think they understand the metaphor. And and, and then he he talks about in verse forty four of chapter six, and thirty five through. I think 39, 38. That doctrine that we talked about last week, predestination, no one's going to come to me unless the Father gives him into my hand. That's offensive. But these disciples, back at the beginning of the chapter, are looking to make Jesus king. They want Jesus to march to Jerusalem, feed them as they go on, right, out of thin air, basically, to heal their sick, They're not gonna lose against the Romans. Jesus will just go, bling. They're all healed. But Jesus is not giving them what they want. He's not giving them physical bread. He's not going to Jerusalem as their king. It is the teaching of Jesus that I told you last week, that the flesh and the blood, that points to the cross. And the cross is offensive. So Jesus tries to dole everything down, tries to ease everything, right? No. And, and it's very interesting in our day and age of social media. People are always trying to draw crowds, right? There might be some of you in here who on Instagram or Facebook or, or whatever various social media you have, you have thousands of followers. Some of you maybe tens of thousands of followers. That's not uncommon in our day and age. And you don't get followers always by just being offensive. And you especially don't get followers by basically making your teaching harder. That's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus is going to continue teaching, right? So the disciples said, this is a hard saying. This is a hard Teaching. What is Jesus going to do throughout the rest of this chapter? Well, in verse 61, he's going to, uh, he said to them, right? In verse 63, the words that I have spoken. Verse 65, and he said. Verse 67, Jesus said to the 12. And Peter confesses, your words are eternal life. And Jesus answers them. And then he spoke of Judas. Like, John chapter 6 is about the words of God coming through his son. And they are hard, and that's what Jesus is gonna lean into. So uh, these disciples say, this is hard teaching, and Jesus, knowing that they're grumbling, he says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And so in this first group of people, we see people who, who do not anchor their hope in the words of Jesus. They they are confused, they are frustrated, they are offended by the words of Jesus, they don't anchor their hope in Jesus, and so what happens is Jesus gives them more of his words. And he says, what if you were to see the son of man, and that's his favorite phrase for himself, what if you were to see the son of man ascend to where he was before? What does Jesus mean by that? Well, whenever he refers to himself as the son of man, I've read this text before, we'll read it again today, I want you guys to think, son of man, Daniel chapter seven, Son of man, Daniel chapter 7, because that is what Jesus is referring to. And as Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, he's referring to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus says, what if you saw the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? I think it is a loaded phrase where, one, he's talking about Daniel 7, where he's he's over all things. He, He is the one who has dominion and a kingdom and power and glory He's referring to to what the writer of Hebrews would say. He's above the angels. He's created all things. He's also referring to his resurrection. Because after all, Jesus is going to rise from the dead. He's going to go back to where he came from. And Jesus says, so this teaching offends you, that I'm from heaven? What if you saw me go back to heaven? What if you saw me on my throne What if you saw millions and millions of angels bowing and worshiping me? Would you really be offended then? At my words, my teaching? So he says that, and then the next phrase, he says, it is the spirit who gives life. How does that connect? Where's the transition there, Jesus? Uh, He's talking about salvation. And and, and Jesus had been pushing the metaphor of his flesh being the bread of life and, and you're saved by that. But what he's pointing out is it's the spirit who works in you to give you life. And he goes on and he says the flesh is no help at all. It's not Jesus' physical flesh that he says, you have to eat my flesh. It's not saying physically you have to eat. It's saying the spirit gives life. But he's also saying your flesh cannot save you. You are no help to your own salvation. And, And if you think about the Jewish mindset, these people thought they were mostly good. They were following the rules. They were, after all, God's chosen people. And he says, the flesh is no help at all. It's the spirit that brings life. And that can be offensive to our egos because the same is true for you and I. Charles Spurgeon said this, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him for you are worse than he thinks you to be. It's true. We don't think of ourselves as mostly bad. I talked about it this morning in Sunday school. One of my favorite presidents, Ronald Reagan, he thought mankind was mostly good. And I love Ronald Reagan, but he was mostly wrong. Actually, he was wrong. The Bible never says man is mostly good. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, He's he's talking about the fact that who we are apart from God, and what the Bible does is it paints a terrible picture of who we are apart from God. Paul writes in Romans 3, 9 through 19 about the Jewish people. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Are the religious people who who have the Old Testament, are we any better off than everybody else? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, could be Gentiles, all people are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruined and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's how Paul describes all of humanity. And you go, well, well, I don't think we're that bad. Well, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? But I do good works. Even apart from Jesus, I still do good things. Yeah, to serve yourself. Motivated by self-interest. And so Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. The Bible is very clear, friends, that we are not righteous. We are far from it. We are the exactly opposite of righteous. We are sinners, So, why does Jesus say this to, to this group? Why is Jesus saying that to us that we're sinners? It doesn't build a following. You're all dirty, rotten sinners. We're going to have 2,000 more people next week, right? Because it's our natural bent as human beings to think that we can do something to the, earn the affections of God, and we can't. We cannot. We cannot love enough, we cannot pray enough, we cannot read our Bibles enough, we cannot be in the church enough. We simply are not enough. In fact, Jesus calls us to be holy, as his Father is holy, holy or perfect in Matthew 5, 48. And guess what? Not a single one of you is holy or perfect. Why? So much begins at the garden. And in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned. And we are told that their sin was imputed, was given to us for all time. And so there's some churches out there that, that would say, well, when babies are born, they are born with a clean slate. Or when babies are born, they're born mostly good until they sin. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible says we're sinners And we're bound to our sin. Our will is captive to sin, to think of ourselves, to worship ourselves, to glorify ourselves. But Jesus points these disciples towards his word. And he promises that the spirit gives life. And he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There's a connection there between the spirit. Where's their life? There is life in the words of Jesus Christ. There is life nowhere else. And so I, I was even thinking and praying this weekend about our church and I pray, Lord willing, our church will be centered on the word of Jesus. Always. I pray when you go out from this room that your hearts reverberate the words of Jesus because it is only in the words of Jesus that people are saved it is only through us handling the word of God and releasing the word of God in Fort Wayne and New Haven and Huntertown and everywhere else that you live that people will know Christ you, you, can, you can be so kind to your neighbor your coworker, your family your friends whoever else you can be so kind to them that will not save them It is through the words of Christ that we are saved. It is through the words of Christ that the Holy Spirit works in people's hearts that they come to Christ. And for you, dear brothers and sisters, who are in Jesus, you are in Jesus, not because you are so great, but because God is so great. And Jesus says, it's my words that give life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Try almost everyone in the group, Jesus. And John makes this aside. He says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then he says this. I'm not discouraged by it. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Where's Christ's hope? How can he not despair when he knows there are thousands getting ready to leave him? When there are thousands who will just walk away? Because didn't Jesus come to to save the lost? And here's a bunch of lost sheep, and they're all about to go away except 11. And he roots his hope in God's plan. Friends, what, what are we supposed to do? How can we not despair? We can only not despair in this life if we trust the words of Jesus and we believe that God has a plan. A theologian named Morris said, unbelief is to be expected apart from a divine miracle. It is impossible for anyone to come to Christ without the Father's giving him the grace to do so. Left to himself, the sinner prefers his sin. Conversion is always a work of grace. We sing that. Grace, grace, God's grace. And as I look out, I see miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle of God changing hearts and redeeming you from your sin. Friends, that's the church The church is a living example of what the word of Christ can do in this world. In fact, in the Reformation, last week was celebrating the Reformation, right? 505 years since Martin Luther pounded that 95 theses to the castle church door at Wittenberg. And Martin Luther, I I, I love what he says. I've said it before, say it again. He says, I did nothing. He translated, he preached, he he did all that, but he let God's word go out. While he slept, while he drank his wife's beer. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. Um, God's word did it all. How has God's word penetrated your heart? Or how is it still a hard teaching for you? because of these hard sayings, because of what Jesus just said, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Can you imagine being in that lake town? Jesus is in the synagogue, and there's so many people they can't even all fit in the synagogue. And Jesus tells them, believe in me, I'm the bread of life. And the Jewish leaders, they get angry, and they leave. And they already don't like Jesus. They want to kill him. But here are thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who the day before wanted to make him king. And they leave. And you could think of the silence. And you could hear, instead of a motorcycle, just the waves Against the shore. That's our first group. And here's our second group. And Jesus is still anchored in hope In the plan of his father. But he turns to the second group. He turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to leave me too? Now, Jesus knows all things. But here we see a second group of people. People who anchor their hope in the words of Jesus. And let me tell you what. We throw Peter under the bus all the time, right? Peter always gets thrown under the bus. But here, let us rejoice in the fact that Peter marvelous, marvelously gets it right. And of course it was Peter who answered right. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of of eternal life. Peter got it. Peter got it. Jesus had just been preaching to these people and saying it's it's my words that give you life and Peter got it. And he answers for the group. He, He says, and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What a profession. What a profession. Peter anchors his hope in what? The words of Jesus. It is your words, Jesus, that give eternal life. Where else are we gonna go? We're gonna go to Gamaliel? Nope. His words don't bring eternal life. Are we gonna go just back fishing? Talk amongst ourselves? That's not going to bring eternal life. Jesus, you bring eternal life. And we expect Jesus to say, well done. But what does Jesus say? Where does he turn here? He answers them. Because Peter's talking plural for everybody, right? Jesus answers them. Did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. Chase, I, I, th- I thought you said there's, there's a group of people who don't anchor their hope in the words of Jesus, and then there's a group of people who do, and so we like, should all be praising, like, yes, anchored in the hope of Jesus' word. What is this response? <laughs> it's not Jesus getting discouraged, friends. Right, well, he might be getting discouraged, but he's not despairing. Jesus is looking ahead, and he knows the road. He knows what he has to do. And there's thousands who've just left him, and that's not the hardest part of his mission. There's one who will betray him. One of his closest disciples, Judas. But Jesus is anchoring his hope here. Not in the fact that And one of you is a devil. You're going to kill me. He's not being stupid here. He's being realistic. And he knows why he has come. And he's anchoring his hope in the words of God, through himself, but the sovereign plan of God. And 700-ish years before Isaiah prophesied about a suffering servant in Isaiah 49, 1 through 7. And I I want you to listen to this. Isaiah 49, 1 through 7. This is amazing. So there's a proclamation. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Hear all world, essentially. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. This is leading up to Isaiah 53. We're all familiar with Isaiah 53, right? The suffering servant. He he dies. But this is leading up. This is a transition in Isaiah where now the suffering servant is talking about the future Christ. 700 years before this happens. John 6 And Jesus knows all this he's well acquainted with the scriptures he knows who he is and what he's there for But look at verse 4 of Isaiah 49 4 but i said i have labored in vain i've spent my strength for nothing and vanity That suffering servant that'll be slayed for the sins of the world, grew discouraged. If there's not a time that Christ was discouraged, it's right here after he's clearly laid out who he is and thousands of people walk away and he's looking at 12. He says, Do you want to leave as well? And he knows that there's one in the 12 he's going to stick around until he can stick him in the back. Did Jesus grow discouraged? Yes. But he did not despair. Because the last part of verse 4 says, Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And then, something that's good news for all of us. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. That's Israel. And that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, this is God's declaration to his servant. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too little of a thing just to bring Israel back to me. Okay, and, and where's Jesus? He's, he's talking to the people of Galilee. He's talking to Jewish people. It's too light a thing just to bring Israel back to me. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes and they shall prostrate themselves, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Jesus is saying this, or the Lord's declaring this, and Jesus is remembering the mission in John chapter six, that He's not here just to save those people. God's plan is global. God's plan is to redeem the nations back to himself. And so, yes, there's 20,000 people and they leave. And there's, there's, there's even a disciple who's going to stab him in the back. But why? Because God's plan is bigger than just on that shore of Galilee. God's plan has reached for thousands of years. And you are a testament to the plan of God that our ancestors all around the world scattered right that do not know god that do not know the hope of the mission of god that he sent his son the bread of life to redeem the world and that by believing in him you'll be saved you're here why because of the mission of god because jesus did not despair jesus knew that god's mission was not just right there in galilee not right there in capernaum Now, just right there with the big crowds, God's mission was much larger. And that he would redeem the nations. How does he do it? He does it through Judas betraying him. I mean, it's very weird that Judas is mentioned twice in John 6, We haven't heard about him up until this point, and and it's several chapters until John just will write about the last week of Jesus. But right here in the middle of John six, right here where every gospel gives an account of Jesus breaking the bread and serving 5,000 people, right there in the middle of Jesus' high point and then a low point of his ministry on earth right in the middle of him looking out to the 12, and they say, we're not going to leave you. And he says, I know one of you is going to betray me. Jesus roots his hope in what God's going to do. Yes, Judas, you're going to betray me. But I am going to die and rise again. And I'm going to redeem the nations and I'm going to bring people to God, and my word is going to go out all over the world, and people are going to come to know my Father. You can't despair when you're thinking about it like that. So what does it mean for us? Well, Certainly, first and foremost, we need to know that there is hope in the words of Jesus, and the sovereign plan of God. There is hope. We need to know that. Intellectually, we need to know that. Despite what you see in your life. The, the world would have you think that everything's just the worst. Or occasionally, you might be a fan of um, the Astros. They won the World Series last night. And, 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 and you might think, wow, your candidate on Tuesday is definitely going to win. And our country is going to turn around. And you're thinking, man, this is, this is just a glorious thing. My life is just working out and you had the best meal you ever had last night, and you're getting ready to go hang out with people that you just love, and you're like, man, this, this is the life. But friends, that's, that's not our hope. You all should be old enough now, even some of the kids in here, to know that life changes on a dime. And life gets hard. And so for some of you, you've been beaten down so much that it's hard to even think and, and to know that there is hope in Christ, there is hope in the words of God and God's sovereign plan. He's still working. So you need to know that, despite whatever's going on in your life. We need to be, and this is harder. We need to be, we need to believe. This is, this is the content of our souls. We need to be subject to the words of Christ over human logic, Jesus's words are hard. His teaching is hard. The doctrine of predestination is hard. The doctrine of election is hard. There are people who've worked on this doctrine for 2,000 years and they haven't quite fit. How does it work out? I was talking to a guy right after Sunday school because in God's good plan, we were covering it in Sunday school too. So double dose, wonderful. And he said, I believe it, but how does it work? I don't know and I, I had to say, I don't know either. But we must submit our wills, our logic, our reason that God has given us reason, he's given us logic, we must submit it to the words of God. Where else can we go? Where else can we go for the words of eternal life? And lastly, what you need to do, if you have not trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Today, you need to repent and believe in Christ because he is the one who has come down from heaven. He is the one who has been offered as a, as a sacrifice for your sins. He is the one who rose again. The Son of Man has already ascended into heaven and one day he will be crowned with many crowns. And One day every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow before the Son of Man because he will have accomplished the mission of God. That is a sure thing. It's already done. Jesus is anchoring his hope in the fact that his Father's plan is going to be done, and you need to repent and believe in the gospel. And if you've already believed in that glorious gospel, what you need to do, dear sister, dear brother, is you need to take heart In your Savior, if he's yours, he is going to deliver you. And I'm not saying that that means your life is going to be peachy keen and you're just going to have all sorts of great things happen in your life. That's not true whatsoever. I'm reminded of the fact that when God chose Paul to be his apostle to the Gentiles, he says he must suffer many things for me. Jesus call the gospels, take up your cross and follow after me. Deny yourself, follow after me. That's a hard saying, and guess what? Life can be really hard as Christians. Um, I am thrilled to death of hearing the news about um, Sarah Metcalf's mom, Marlene. Praise God that her cancer is now treatable. That's a blessing. But as I heard that news this week, there were two ladies that I know who received... Terrible cancer diagnoses. Life can beat you down, but friends, do we believe in God's words? Do we believe he has a plan? Do we believe that he will accomplish something so much greater and that forever we will live with him and dwell with him and glory in him? Do we believe that? And do we believe that that the afflictions of this world right now are minor compared to the eternity we'll spend with God? Do we turn our eyes, when we're tempted to, to despair, do we turn our eyes upward and look to Christ? Or do we look at ourselves and think how terrible we are, how terrible our life is, how terrible our circumstances are? Friends, we have a great God. A great God who sent his son, as Hebrews tells us. He's a high priest who's empathetic and sympathetic towards us. He knows what we go through. You think you know despair? Try having thousands of people leave you and one of your best friends going to betray you and you know that and you go to the cross. But Jesus did not despair because he knew that God was working. And some of you are saying, okay, I, I don't think I can believe in Jesus because I am terrible. I've rejected him one too many times. I've been like those other disciples who have just walked away from Jesus time and time again. I love this quote by John Flavel. As God did not first choose you because you were high, he will not now forsake you because you were low. Come to Jesus. And friends, take heart in the storms of this life that God has a plan and he's working. Anchor. Your hope in Jesus and his words and the plans of God.